This is lesson two of what currently is planned to be a 12-week course entitled, A Call to One Another Ministry. And the lesson tonight is the toxic nature of an alternative gospel. And this will make more sense as we go into the evening because we're going to lay out briefly what we talked about last week. And then we'll get into this challenge, this alternative gospel. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I'm going to do just a brief review. And and I hope it'll help you. There's a couple new things even in the review. So if you were here last week, don't fall asleep because I'll give you something new, I hope. Why don't we uh, briefly pray, though, first? Father, what a delight to be here with your family, to be here with your brothers and sisters, friends. And Father, we, we don't take that lightly. You have adopted us into a new family and given us these relationships in which we are able to hopefully give your life in us to one another and to share that life in us with one another and to um, encourage that life in us, which is your life in us, to one another. And so help us tonight. May your spirit direct us, encourage us tonight from your word. Uh, may we encourage one another as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we have three basic goals for the class. And I'm going to repeat this, and I'm going to give you, I've got a really well-made visual that I did on myself this afternoon that fortunately Steve's not here so far tonight because he would mock me. I know he would. But I liked it, and I hope you like it too because it makes sense to me and if I can explain it. But that's coming shortly. But the first thing, first goal is to identify, discuss, and validate core biblical beliefs that should direct how we minister to one another. What are these beliefs? And I've told you there are five of them that I'm going to lay out over the next 12 weeks. But to understand those beliefs and understand what it means as it impacts who we call for help, whether it's a counselor or an elder or a friend or how we make those decisions, it's going to help us to contrast those five biblical beliefs with alternative beliefs. Compare these beliefs with beliefs that lie behind why we embrace so much professional Christian and biblical counseling today or professional and biblical counseling materials today or programs. Now, as I said last week, I'm not, and you'll understand this because next week we're going to talk a lot about counseling. We're not going to talk so much about that this week. I'll tell you what we're going to talk about. We're talking about an alternative gospel this week. And then the final issue, which is the most, I mean, once we understand this, the application of it for us is, is how competent are we? Can we help? What happens if somebody calls you? What do you do? Can you help or not? What would you need to know to help? How would you proceed to help? Or would you refer them to somebody else to help? So, five beliefs. This is the first one. I'm going to review it for those of you who weren't here. A call to life. Next week, you're going to get the second belief. And then we have three more. Now, they're not necessarily one per week. You've learned that. We might spend two or three weeks on one, 
but typically it's about two weeks per belief with a little bit of rounding up. As you know, I'm working through the material with you. Now, this top item, in the beginning God, is it's there because there's something else beyond the roadmap that we're building from these five beliefs. There's something else even more compelling. There, it's, a, in essence, an umbrella. It is a, I'd call it the foundation, except it sits on top, the tapestry of, of an overall belief that, that I'm going to introduce when we get here. And it'll make more sense when we get there. But I'm giving you a little tantalizer within the beginning, God. And if you've been in one of my classes before, you might know what that means. But you may not know what it means relative to our issue of who do we call or can somebody call us. So that's generally what we're doing in this 12 weeks. Tonight, we're going to finish up belief number one. And we're going to, you're going to be able to answer tonight the question, what are the pressing issues behind the call? Because as I mentioned last week, there's three different call things that we're talking about. What are the pressing issues behind the call? Who do we call and why? And then how competent are we ourselves to receive any calls? So those are three calling-related issues. Any questions? I mean, I, I hope that gives you a good framework. And don't you like that diagram? Seriously, wasn't that good? Karen, did you like it? <laughs> it's always interesting when I get home. It's, how'd I do, Karen? What time is it, Jim? You know, something like that. No, she's a very good critic in a good way. So, let's review belief number one briefly. A Christian has been given life in Christ, a call to life in Christ. Now, I've rewritten this slightly because I last week I gave you the basics, but we just added a little bit because of what we talked about last week. So let me reread it. A Christian has been given life in Christ. Who we call for help and the answers we are seeking are significantly influenced by our understanding of the gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, a Christian has been given new, complete resurrection life in Christ. We have literally been twice born. And this resurrection life in the Son, Zoe, which we talked about last week, is fundamentally different than the universal center of our experiences that we call life under the Son, Suke. So what do we mean by this Suke and Zoe? Well, we spent all week last week, so I'm not going to spend... A lot of time, but I've given you a couple more visuals, I think, that might help. Suke, the domain of death under the sun. That's where we are as a result of the curse. And God said, you may eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they ate, and death entered in. And so everyone, when they're born, is in Adam, aren't they? In Adam, dead. But 
by the grace of God, some of us are not. And so, Zoe, resurrection life in the Son. So I'm going to give you just four verses to summarize the verses, because I there were like 25 to 30 verses that we walked through last week. By the way, anybody remember how many verses there were in the, in the New Testament for Zoe, both the, the noun and the verb form combined? How well were you listening? 281, Karen, that is right. <laughs> how did you know that? You wrote it down. <laughs> So how many of you looked up the 281 verses this week? Did you spend some time? You did not? It wouldn't have been that hard to do. Well, again, I encourage you. It's a wonderful study. So let me give you four of them. How's that? So they're all written by John through the Holy Spirit, of course. John 3, 3 through 6. Now, these are verses we didn't mention last week. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? How is Nicodemus thinking then? In a suki way, isn't he? Suki way. Come on, it's all horizontal. It's down on earth. What's going on? And by the way, you'll notice how the Lord, another thing, consistently people would respond with, well, what about this here? And he would take them to, to look up, always, to Zoe. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 5:24 through 26 Truly truly I say to you he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life Truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. John chapter 6, verses 67 and 68. Now, keep in mind, right before this, that, that when we're talking about being born twice, being literally born again, this is an ontological thing we're talking about. This is our state of being. This is who we are now. We are a new creature. We were this way, in Adam. And now we are alive in Christ. And there's no turning back. You do understand that. Do anybody want to? No. There, once, we are in Christ. We're secure, sealed by the Spirit of God in Christ. We're, we're in Pilgrim's Progress. We're, we're on the, the, the road, you know, the highway. The King's Highway is the right word isn't it I should know but it wasn't one of my lines now Peter got that with his response here because as Jesus said to the twelve you do not want to go away also do you and Simon Peter answered him Lord to whom shall we go you have words of eternal life he got it Nicodemus early on didn't get it early on in John 3 
he left. He heard the words. Now, later on, we have evidence that he got it. Where else would we go? He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And then we spent time not just looking at the word Zoe, but we spent time looking at how all of Scripture, so much of it, reinforces this concept of living, looking at things on the earth from a horizontal way versus eternal life way. And we, from the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the language of death for believers, how the, the language of sleep, the language of our home, tents, the language of directing our lives and in terms of command, set your minds on things above, not on things below. And the language of directing our prayers. And we looked at uh, the prayers from Paul, particularly Ephesians 1 and the Lord's Prayer. And we could have looked at a lot more. So many of the dialogues of our Lord with individuals, as I mentioned, were he would, they would say something that would be suke related. And he would come back and turn it into a spiritual Zoe concept. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians. And I want to look at this just briefly. I know I give you all the verses, so I don't have to do that. Okay, here we go. As we look at our Lord, look at, I, we'll start with verse 18 because we have here, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Remember, we talked about how which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So so we talked about how from a practical way, as we as we talk tonight about this battle between Suke and Zoe that we all have, it's it's. It's the experiences of life, of, of, of our, where our affections are and how much we love things on earth versus things that aren't on earth. Or as one of my lines in Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan wonders, he said, he said, believe steadfastly concerning things that are invisible. That is the faith battle that we all struggle with because we're overwhelmed with what we see and what we feel and smell and hear. And that controls us. That controls what we love. It controls where we're going to get answers. And as we talk about tonight, it controls the kinds of answers that we're seeking. The pressing needs that, that are, are driving us to certain types of resources are built on, on what we love and where our affection is. And so I, I suggested that one way to fight it that Paul tells us is by prayer. And he tells us to pray that we would experience this power in us to live life not controlled by circumstances, a power that is this resurrection power that's referred to here. The same power as when he raised him from the heavenly places. Well, it gets better when we get to chapter 2. That's what I wanted to bring. So as we go on, so now... If you want to know a place to start when you're witnessing to people who are sinners, chapter 2, verse 1 is a great place. But I, I kind of like even chapter 1. Point them to the greatness of God. 
But then we go from the greatness of God, this beautiful picture of Christ at the end of chapter 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We get a picture of sin and depravity. Dead. Suke, dead. In Adam, dead. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then verse 6, And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Doesn't that stir your soul? We've just read about how the Lord has been raised up. He's been seated. And now we read that we're raised up too with him. So we talk about in Christ, in that unity in Christ, that symbiotic, mystical union. You see it throughout scripture. And this is a wonderful picture of it here in Ephesians. Okay, so conclusion. We can have two calls. One is influenced by life under the sun. One is influenced by life in the sun. One is driven and affected by me at its center. One is centered and based on my joy with the presence of Christ. One is impacted by the circumstances and cares of this world and how they have, been, how they have created value and become attachments to me. These are the struggles. This isn't, there's no 100% either way on this. We're tugged between the two. Um, One is impacted by the Holy Spirit, my brothers and sisters around me, and my longing to please and draw near to him. This is primarily, I think, where we're tugged. But it's our belief system that influences this. So what is it that's been challenging our belief system? If indeed... We said that the gospel, understanding the gospel, understanding this new life we have in Christ, what's the challenger? Well, the challenge is the toxic nature of this alternative gospel. There's another gospel out there. Now, you may not be able to see this very well because of the resolution here. But down here, this says prosperity gospel, and this says therapeutic gospel. So what in the world is a therapeutic gospel? Well, first of all, it's not the same as the prosperity gospel. We all know what that is. Every TV evangelist almost is about the prosperity gospel. It's about health and wealth. And particularly if you send me a donation, I guarantee health and wealth for you. Or I'll send you a handkerchief and you can, we'll pray over it for you. Jim, I would say that Well, it's certainly around churches in our own lives, too. It's exactly right, Charlie. We do not understand the subtleness of it. Um, But at least it's a term we kind of can talk about. Tonight, though, we're talking about the therapeutic gospel, and it's different. Michael Horton calls it the self-esteem gospel. Our purpose is to enjoy life and be happy. And God is here to meet our needs Now, needs are going to be an important theme for tonight. God wants us to feel good and especially to feel good about ourselves. You see how that's slightly different from the prosperity, although they're both close. That's why I have them as twin sisters. We, you and me, 
are all impacted by it. We all, and you'll see that tonight. I promise you, before you leave tonight, you're going to be going, oh, I wish I hadn't come, Jim. I kind of feel icky inside. But I don't want you to feel like that. I want you to have a good time and enjoy the Lord. Does Christ come to boost our ego or to crucify our ego and raise us up as new creatures with our identity in him? Michael Horton continues. Self-realization, self-fulfillment, and self-help are all contemporary twists on an old heresy which Paul identified as works righteousness. America is largely oriented to what happens inside of us in our own personal experience rather than what God has done for us in history. Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson in the explicit gospel, the moralistic therapeutic deism passing for Christianity in many of the churches these young adults grew up in includes talk about Jesus and about being good and avoiding bad, especially about feeling good about oneself. And God factored into all of that, but the gospel message simply wasn't there. Now, where did all this come from? One of my, and a lot of you have read articles by Ed Welch, and he is very much involved in what we would call the biblical counseling movement. And we're going to talk about biblical counseling and Christian counseling and the differences between that next week. Secular counseling. We all sort of know what that is, but most of you may not know that there's a difference between a difference in the Christian community that they understand between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. But Ed Welch said, well, Freud started it with the need deficit model. Initially came out of biology and medicine, a need for sexual expression, and then behavioralists continued. Basic needs, Maslow. Who's the, who's the most well-known Christian psychologist who's a behavioralist? He, he just retired, but he moved on to a new ministry. James Dobson. I know, Betsy. Uh, Betsy, I am, I, I'm going to put this on tape for Gina to hear. Gina, are you listening? Betsy, your mom was right twice tonight. All areas of secular psychology address experience of needs. Psychological needs is distinctly American, the emphasis on the individual. It's a popular view that problems arise out of unmet needs. Well, that's pretty common. Well, let's move it to the Christian arena because that's who we're talking to tonight. Christian theorists, these needs are met in Christ. Seems biblical. Christ is a friend, loving father. We do experience a sense of meaningfulness in knowing God's love. Christ seems to be an answer to our problems. Christ fills us with identity, significance, and purpose. In essence, makes us feel good about ourselves. That sounds okay, doesn't it? But it isn't the gospel. Isn't the gospel, though, designed to obliterate our preoccupation with ourselves? Isn't loving God and loving others, aren't those the issues here? Our deepest problem is not longings and needs, it's sin. Christ is not our need meter, he's our redeemer. Relationships are not mutual need meetings, 
We love so we can imitate Christ and glorify him. God is to be praised not just for what he's done for me, but for who he is in all his perfections. In brief, the center of gravity for need-based relationships is me instead of God. Now, it's easy for us to amen that, I know. And, and, but we struggle with it, don't we? Like, like, what about Bob Wiley? Let's talk about Bob. What about Bob? What about Bob, Bob? So if you were, if you were to... If you were to give me a word to describe Bob Wiley from those of you who've seen What About Bob, what do you think? What words would you use? Oh, definitely insecure. Anybody else? He doesn't know what's happening. He, I mean, there are probably 8,000 words that are cycle terms they're describing. But so let me ask you, if somebody were to ask you, you know, tell me, how would you describe yourself? Somebody said, well, what kind of person are you? Who are you? How would you describe yourself? Don't need to answer it to me. Just think for a minute. What would be the basic thing that you would say about somebody, about yourself? I asked this question when Bob invited me to speak at this conference in Denver a couple of years ago. There are about 120 pastors. I had this up there, and I said, so how would you describe yourself? And then after, I said, did you describe yourself biblically? And then I put this up. In fact, before I even put up the answer, Bob Wiley, as odd as he was, he actually got close to the right answer to the question. Do you remember what he said his reason for being divorced from his wife was? Neil Diamond. <laughs> He, he said, basically, Neil Diamond, he was asked, he said, basically, Dr. Marvin, there's two kinds of people. People that love Neil Diamond and people that don't love Neil Diamond. <laughs> and my wife loved Neil Diamond. So in the midst of all of his problems, that was the issue they got divorced was over Neil Diamond. Well, the reality is, Bob Wiley was sort of right. There are two kinds of people. Did any of you say this? Did any of you say that your basic personality, did you think, I know I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'll bet most of you said, well, I'm outgoing. You know, you know some of these, type A, dominant, introvert, passive, phlegmatic, steady, friendly, or a man from Mars. Those are all personality terms. Descriptions that are common today. Now, are they are they harmful? Maybe not. I mean, they're helpful to describe people. I mean, I love those personality tests. I'd rather be a lion than a you know a rhino or a porcupine or something. So, but but language is important, isn't it? Let me show you how language is important. Let's, this is a long text from Romans 6, but let's read this together and get an idea of what it means to be a slave to Christ and see how important biblical truth is. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. 
Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin, freed from being in Adam, freed from being in controlled by Suke, and you now are enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful text. So, language, how we describe ourselves. You know, the pressing issues behind the calls are what we said we're going to talk about tonight. And and that language of that psychological, therapeutic language that's crept into the materials that we read into the books and the programs we attend. Next week will be much more about who we call in terms of the counseling stuff. This week it's it's about how that influences, you know, the the things that we read and the things that we, uh, the programs. In in essence, I, I said this when we talked last week, and you saw that in the overview. Seventy years ago, there was no such thing as counseling or certainly Christian counseling, professional Christian counseling, and biblical counseling did not exist in the, in the body of Christ. You all understand that. This is a new stuff. Well, the new norm, the new norm is counseling and counseling-related programs, books, radio programs, materials. They're everywhere. And so I could spend, I have libraries of bad stuff at my house because I've been reading this. I've gotten rid of a lot of it. But tonight I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of some fairly current material just to show you how full of the therapeutic gospel it is. And we're going to start with the purpose-driven life. How many of you know who Tim Challies is? Anybody know? Yeah, wonderful blog, well worth reading. So, Challies does a much better job of explaining this than I do. So let me read for you what Tim Challies says about the purpose-driven life, and and see how much of this therapeutic language is woven in to a book that Bible churches in the Dallas area held small group Bible studies with. There's nothing here about having a closer walk with God. As a matter of fact, there's little promise that would not be found in a secular book about finding purpose. 
Experience will be the ultimate measure of whether this book has succeeded. It does not promise to change the heart or mind. The book is based on a false premise that there is supernatural value to a 40-day study. The author says that whenever God wanted to prepare someone for his purposes, he took 40 days. This is simply not true. Page 25 seems to summarize the thesis of the book. It says, we discover that meaning and purpose only when we make God the reference point of our lives. This seems to say that if the reader finds God, he will also find himself and his purpose. This is not the gospel. There is a serious impact to Warren's use of so many translations. It shows his view of the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture. It seems that he does not believe that the Bible as God wrote it is sufficient for people today. He must believe that a very loose paraphrase like the message can impact people in a way that the real translations cannot. He shows that he is not a faithful expositor of the Bible. The author does not at any time provide a clear explanation of the gospel message. On page 58 he says, Real life begins by committing yourself completely to Jesus Christ but never comes closer than that. He never writes about crucial doctrines as man's sinfulness and need for a savior or the work of Jesus. He never mentions the importance of Christ's life, the cross or the empty tomb. Yet on page 58, we find him leading the prayer of Jesus, I believe in you and receive you. And then saying, welcome to the family of God. How can a person become a Christian without any understanding of his own sinfulness? or of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And finally, Warren's gospel seems to be one of purpose. He teaches that man's greatest problem is purposelessness. And this book will remedy that situation by helping the reader discover his purpose. Needless to say, this is not the gospel as taught by the Bible. The Bible teaches that man's greatest problem is that he is a sinner and is alienated from God purposelessness is insignificant compared to the possibility of an eternity in hell. And that, see, I mean, when we read it, it, it's clear. But we're also deceived because we all want purpose. We all want that. The author seems to fall into a trap where he sees teachings about purpose in parts of the Bible that simply are not about purpose. For example, on page 30, he talks about the hopelessness of a life lived without purpose. In discussing this under the heading of the benefits of purpose-driven living, he quotes the book of Job, where Job says, My life drags by day after hopeless day. Of course, familiarity with the book of Job will show that to say Job was bemoaning lack of purpose is ridiculous. A man who has had everything he owned and everyone he loved taken from him and is covered with sores is not likely to be upset by a lack of purpose in his life. Thank you, Tim Challies. By the way, we're family. Rick Warren, I I have every reason to believe he's a believer. Um, We will mention, I don't have any problem mentioning names. I, I, but when I do that, I, I hope you will help me remember that that we're we're trying to to talk about truth here. And so I say things that you don't like. I trust that you'll tell me and 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 help me 
and I trusted uh, uh, Rick Warren. And I've heard that Rick Warren, by the way, there's some things in his life that have really changed since he read, wrote this book. So there's been ministry going on. And I'm just pointing out an example of something that was embraced by the evangelical world. Well, how about, um, I don't even want to get in. There's, he had one more statement here. but So, love languages. Gary Chapman. Anybody read that book? It's big everywhere. Could it be that deep inside hurting couples exists an invisible emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehavior, withdrawal, harsh words, and critical spirit occur because of that empty tank? If we could find a way to fill it, could the marriage be reborn? Could that tank be the key that makes marriage work? His advice seems so doable. The problems of life are very fixable with a a little bit of education and a little bit of effort. Our needs are significant and can be addressed. People don't really need help and power from outside themselves. No need for repentance or forgiveness. The marriages in his book don't need Jesus' blood, sweat, and tears. How about boundaries? You know, boundaries started as a single book co-authored by a person that attended this church a long time ago. You cannot go to a Christian bookstore today and in the top ten, one of the boundaries, boundaries for children, boundaries for middle-aged people, boundaries for whomever, single people. There's an entire... So the boundary series contains biblical references throughout as a means to illustrate Scripture's emphasis on boundaries. But psychological theory seems to be the basic reason that this metaphor receives attention. Theory and practice always join. In this case, the theory is the psychological construct of separation individuation. This developmental theory, psychological theory, assumes that the critical task of childhood is to develop an identity separate from others and only nurtured and affirmed children can establish a clear sense of me and not me. With this developmental scheme as a starting point, the boundaries imagery naturally becomes a dominant interpretive grid for all of life. Like most psychological theories, boundaries has kernels of reliable observation. Otherwise, a theory would garner no interest whatsoever. But scripture indicates that there is a much more profound and developmental task. That is, how can we grow in wisdom, learn the fear of the Lord, and understand how God intends human life to be lived? When boundaries becomes a lifestyle, we're going to think about self-protection more than love. The overarching image of Scripture is that we should break down boundaries between ourselves and others rather than erect them. We should, in, in a better way to put it, are we willing to die to ourselves to live for others? Or are we more concerned about protecting ourselves from being hurt by others? I could spend all night. You want to go through the Stephen ministry. Stephen ministry, how many of you have heard of it? It is all over the Bible church community. It's everywhere. Started by a secular psychologist. They have, Renee's done some research on 100 people on their staff in St. Louis. Very expensive material, and it will certify you to do ministry to people, visitation ministry in hospitals, and, and people wear their little Stephen ministry robes 
in the Methodist churches and in Bible churches. They are proud to be a certified Stephen minister. Actually, the concept was all about what we like, one anothering. It's taking needs, taking some of this ministry off of the staff of the church and equipping the body of Christ to do the work. So in, it, in theory, I said, well, that's a good idea. But if you look at the material, it's, it's, it, it's not good at all. Celebrate recovery. How many of you heard the Total Transformation program on radio? By the way, it's still free. It's been free. If you just order it, I think it's been free for 10 years. Call now, and we'll send you a free, limited time use only, free. But they've said that for 10 years now. So at anyway, it's free. Wild at Heart, John Eldridge, Tim LaHaye, Spirit-Controlled Temperament, The Four Temperaments of Men. How many of you read that book? All of us old people have, yes. Phlegmatic, choleric. You know where he got that? <laughs> he got it from the Zodiac. That's right. He got it from, from astrological Zodiac that he was studying as a psychologist. He said, you know, this would make a good Christian. I can convert this into Christian language. And people love talking about, about strengths and weaknesses and temperaments because that's much easier to say, hey, I'm just kind of, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit shy. I'm, I'm a little bit phlegmatic. That's easier than to die to yourself to live for Christ, isn't it? To use biblical language, that's harder. But it appeals to us because we, we, we like it. It, it. it makes us feel good about ourselves. It's very therapeutic. Most popular current books on marriage and relationships. Most popular current books on the spiritual life. Even some current writing on one another type of ministry. I met with a, a fellow who's written a book on all the one another's of the scripture. And I was asked, are we going to go through all those in this class? Well, no. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit here in a couple of weeks. Two weeks, I think. So it's not that we're going to ignore those verses. They're very important. But I met with him. He goes to a very large church here in town. I was excited that he'd written a book on one another, all those verses. So I sat down with him. He gave me a copy of his book. Very thankful, wonderful Bible church. It's a good church. Went home and started to read through it. Therapeutic. All about how to take these one another's and meet each other's needs through the one anothering verses. Hardly anything about Christ and, and the life we have in Christ and what it means to die to yourself and what it means to sacrifice and what it means to, to, to be Christ-centered in terms of prayer, in terms of uh, knowing God's word and just in terms of anything that's theologically rich. It's all interpersonal, horizontal, and yet it's a book all about the one another. And, of course, anything written by Joel Osteen. So, in brief, the therapeutic gospel moves us toward self-worship. It moves us inward. It moves us toward different anthropology. We start thinking about ourselves in terms of strengths and weaknesses and temperaments and syndromes and disorders and recovery. What does it mean to celebrate recovery? What have we recovered from? I would rather celebrate Christ. That would be a better name of a program. It moves us towards sanctification by external morality and behavior. I mean, we grew, we raised our kids on Dobson's stuff. 
without understanding, it didn't target the heart, didn't target the beliefs, didn't target our affections at all. It targeted behavior. Well, is it wrong to want your kids to be? Of course not. Are there commands in Scripture about do this? Of course there are. So it's a matter of emphasis, isn't it? It's a matter of, of how do we put, and interestingly enough, all of those behavioral commands are always toward the end of the epistles, aren't they? Build on a framework of who we are in Christ, the vertical first. It moves us toward programs and groups. It's very convenient to have these well-packaged, very expensive programs. And it moves us toward, I think, spiritual deadness because it doesn't move us toward Zoe at all. The gospel, the biblical gospel, does opposite. It should. This is the tug. You can, you can go back and test yourself as you're reading a book and thinking about materials. Is it doing this to you? Or is it doing this? Is it stirring your worship of God instead of yourself? Is it seeing yourself fundamentally as a slave to Christ, as a follower? Is it helping you walk by faith? Is it moving you toward prayer in the word instead of a program? Now, some programs are good, and they, they're very involved with prayer in the word. I, I, this isn't anti-programs. But you have to be discerning, don't you? And look and see what the programs... And is it, is it creating life in you? Stirring up life? Basically, the therapeutic gospel produces much more love for self. And the biblical gospel should be doing this. So, what are the pressing issues behind the calls when somebody picks up the phone and is... I'm going to call a counselor, call an elder, call a friend. Or when you are referring somebody to call a counselor, call an elder, call somebody other than you. What, what are the issues? Are they those horizontal issues that, that you want resolved? Or, or are they spiritual issues about Christ and your relationship with him? Are they doesn't mean that every issue that somebody's struggling with, every trial and difficulty is, is because of sin in their life at all. We're going to understand that. There, there's all kinds. Job wasn't because of sin directly for Job, was it? Was it something else going on? But what we do know is that, that these calls that are made, for the most part today, are going to the counseling world. You want a job today? Become a counselor. The fastest growing professions of all kinds of jobs are counselors in all kinds of fields. And there is this big, huge group of counselors that we call secular counseling. They're dominant. And then there's this huge group called Christian counselors. And then there's a little bitty group, they're much smaller than that, called biblical counselors. We're going to learn next week about the counseling world. We're going to learn a little bit about how this even came about. We're going to ask some questions about that because somebody mentioned Jay Adams earlier. and So we'll learn about Jay Adams. And then we're going to, as we look at this counseling world in light of its influence on us and what answers they're delivering, and then we're going to see that there's this different world here. 
this body of Christ world. And we're going to try to make sure we have a distinct line and we understand, because that's one of the big issues today, is that, that these guys, through the materials and a lot, are, are trying to come down here and they influence us. By the way, even the very best of the biblical counselors, people that I love, that share similar gospel, they still are counselors. And so we have to be discerning to see what it is that's good and what it is that may not be. Any questions? Any other materials you've read? Yes. Yes. What I'm saying is that, it, you know, these are believers that are writing material. And if if we're not aware of the suke therapeutic gospel-oriented influence in, in contemporary books, then it's going to influence the materials. It can influence our, our walk with the Lord. But more specifically for our class, it influences the kind of answers we're seeking. You see, the, the answers, the pressing issues behind the calls are the first thing. What, what is it that we want resolved? I'm unhappy. I want a better marriage. I want my kids to behave. I want to not be struggling with alcohol anymore. I don't want to be struggling with pornography anymore. I don't want my husband to be angry with me. I want to be loved more. I want a better identity. I want to be I want to have more purpose. You see, we have all this language that's coming at us and and you'll see it more next week. And they press in on us. And that influences who we call. And it influences the, 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 the issues that we want to be addressed. I could give you, sadly, multiple examples of, of how good material written by believers, but that's full of, uh, Betsy, full of toxic kind of therapeutic language, it's just destroyed marriages and relationships. I mean, I, I know a very large Bible church in town that a couple that I know very well. And their elders, the, the marriage had um, had struggled and, and they, they weren't in love anymore. And they had a bunch of children. And the elders said, look, we think that it's best for those children to see you happy. And you guys are very unhappy. And I think divorce is a good thing for you. We don't, we're not endorsing it. We're not saying you should. But we understand that. For the sake of the children, we, we encourage you to go ahead and, and, and be divorced. Because now the kids can see that you're happy. I mean, that's therapeutic. It's just damaging. And that's in materials. One of my very best friends who told me about Wild at Heart it was so funny. He came up to me. In fact, I love this guy. He he really encouraged me to pray with Karen and kept after me over and over every week. It took a long time for me to pray with her every night consistently. And But then I saw him at a luncheon, and I thanked him for helping me pray. And he said, so, Jim, are you, are you, are you a warrior for Karen yet? And I said, I hope so. I don't know. Am I? You know? What are you talking about? Oh, Jim, you need to read Wild at Heart. If you're not fighting for Karen, if you're not a warrior for her. I said, well, I pray with her. I thought you said that was okay. I got to do more? 
So I went and bought the book, and this is a believer, and and he diagnosed a problem, right? There are a lot of Christian men that are couch potatoes that aren't spiritual leaders. He got it right. But then he starts with this man's basic needs. And a lot of it comes out of Larry Crabb, early Larry Crabb, the basic needs for longing and significance and love. Everybody has these basic needs. It's needs-oriented. comes from Freud and Maslow. It's needs-oriented. And as Christians, they say, well, your needs are met in Christ. But it's not a matter of needs. You see, that's all inward. So let me give you another example, Betsy. Neil Anderson's written a wonderful book, Who Are You in Christ? Who Am I in Christ? I started to go through it with my two sons. Wonderful book. Lots of good Christian sound stuff in it. Every title of every chapter is, I am loved in Christ. I am cared for in Christ. I have significance in Christ. I, I, I. Every chapter is I, I, I. Inward, inward. What did we say about our identity in Christ? It's symbiotic. It's not just who we are in Christ. It's who Christ is in us. That power and love. So we just, church leaders at CBC, they're discerning. Okay, at many churches they are. But across evangelical Christianity, they're not at all. If they were, they wouldn't allow some of this material in their church. Does that answer your question, sort of? Any other questions? It's humbling for me. I mean, I've been on this journey for all these years, and I keep running across how psychologized I am. And Steve will remind me almost every time we talk. I'll find some article that I think is pretty good, and I'll say, Jimmy, that that's okay, but... Don't you see the language here? And ooh, if I just I just need to read Calvin and Spurgeon, and I'll be safe probably. So the issue is legitimizing Suke. I mean, what what we're talking about basically with Suke, it's I mean we we do live on Earth, we do breathe in and out. Okay, we do we are still in Adam, in the sense not I mean we have Adam's remnants on us okay we're in christ but we still have that struggle that's the reality but but god created us as beings to live and walk and talk and eat and 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 there are on earth horizontal things that are that are good to you it's the 49ers beating the cowboys i mean that's good suke for steve i know yeah a lot of bad suke lately for you i know that the real issue is where do we, I think the issue is where do we look for solutions? Where are we looking for answers? You see, because that ties it to the call. You know, we, we, we make calls because we want answers to the problems we have. So we're not, we're not talking about it's bad to put curtains up in your tent. Okay. What we are talking about is if you think your unhappiness is going to be solved by buying that large house in Frisco, you're probably wrong. If you think your happiness is going to be found by traveling the world when you finally get to retire, which many Christians think, oh, I get to retire. Now I can go do my own thing. I've earned the right to do this. I, I, can, I don't have to work. I can just travel and enjoy suke. What, what are we doing when... When the world grabs our affection so much, that's why I love John Piper's early work so much. 
Because Piper, whether he understood it or not, saw the problem of behavior and, 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 he, and he tried to drive us toward our affections. What do we love and not love? And where do we think we can find answers? But that tension between the two will be something we'll explore a little bit more next week when we introduce our belief number two and hopefully uh, give you a, an insight into this very crazy counseling world.